I'm going to pray now. Would you join me as I pray? Father, just like the psalmist in Psalm 119 says, our souls long for salvation. We hope in your word. And Lord, it's true. We, we faint for your salvation. We long for your help because sin has messed up our lives. Our desires are out of line. We value what we shouldn't. And our words are stained with anger and coarseness and stabbing at others. And some of us are here only this morning to impress others, uh, to get friends off our back, or just because it's always what we do. And we want to come clean about that sin in us, Lord, so we can say like David, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And it is forgiveness we crave. And it is forgiveness that only you can give. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So we come with a healthy fear today. And we ask God to forgive us. And we know you do forgive all those who are in Christ Jesus. And God shows his love for us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Saved from the wrath of God. What an incredible thought. How we love Jesus. We praise you for sending him. And Christ, do forgive us. Knit our hearts to you. Grant us the resolve to walk with you every day of our lives whether alone or in public, day and night, with Christian friends, with unbelieving friends, with family, with our enemies, build in us that single-minded devotion to you that marks those who love you. Give us whole hearts for you, not half hearts. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. So in light of this, please hear our prayers this morning. God, we pray for the country of India this morning. And what tragedy we read on a continual basis as COVID is spreading faster than the medical field can keep up with. God, we ask, we plead for mercy for this country. That you would send help. We pray for wisdom for their president, Ram Nath Kovend. Give him clear insight on how to lead the people well. We do pray for the churches in that country. May you bless them during this difficult time. May they be a help and encouragement to others. Father, we too pray for salvation of those that are closest to us, even in our midst. We pray for Paul and Joshua and Nathan and Melissa and Dominic and Evan. You would free them from the slavery of sin. They are bound by their sin and sinfulness, and we ask that you would liberate them by your gospel. We pray for Reno and Richard and Jessica and Seth and Oscar. God, would you put your spirit within them, take up residence in them, turning them from darkness to light. God, we count it a privilege also to pray for the authorities in our life, and we pray for all policemen and law enforcement officers. We ask you would protect them from harm and the performance of their duty to stop crime and robberies and riots and violence, and we ask that you would supply them with the needed courage and strength to protect us from those that seek to hurt and destroy. 
We pray for their spouses also as they release them every shift. Give them peace and courage to trust in you to supply all they need. God, we also pray for the authority of media that we allow in our lives. Father, we know this medium of information has much power in our culture and in our country. And we ask that we as a church would use discernment before consuming media and allowing it to rule our hearts. And we do ask for truth to dominate our culture. Father, we thank you for other local churches in our area. And this morning we pray for Resurrection Presbyterian in Puyallup. You would give them wisdom and strength to their shepherd, David Scott, and his elder team of Scott Jensen and Doug King. We pray that you would give David clarity and conviction this morning as he preaches John 21. That you would be glorified in their midst, we do pray. We do pray for strength and courage for David and his wife Sarah as they serve this church family and in the Puyallup area. Give them love and patience for the people they serve. May you be honored in their lives. Father, we turn, turn to our own church now. We ask that you would bless the membership of this church family which, with a fresh zeal to love one another and more loving patience for each other, a deeper commitment to serve one another. All of that so we can show the reality of our salvation, increase in our generosity and our self-sacrifice and our consistency in prayer, and decrease our talking about each other our envious thoughts, our petty self-interest. Replace fear with faith in all of our relationships. Get us out of ourselves and looking to the interest of others. And God, we do thank you for answered prayer. We thank you for our brother Pat Thatcher, who's home and who's with us this morning. And we pray for strength and healing as he continues to recover. And we thank you also, Father, for answered prayer with Cynthia Mordhorst, and we ask for continued strength and healing for her as well and encouragement in her recovery. And God, we ask for grace this morning. That you give your people the ability to listen and engage with your word as it's preached. We are not interested in gathering facts about you only. We want to meet with you, the Lord of the universe. And so, Holy Spirit, please attend to the preaching of your word now. You would help our brother Dave Allen to depend upon you to make the text clear to us. Put words into his mouth so that we can hear what you want us to hear and understand and think and feel and make our hearts like soft clay in your loving hands. Help us not to, to try to make ourselves a vase if you desire to shape us into a pot. Make us pliable lumps ready to be made into your image, not ours. And purge us of every evil thought, selfish distraction, and plaguing worry, and settle our minds solely on you, and bring us into conformity with your truth, we plead this morning. Speak to us, Lord. We are listening. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. It's my privilege to introduce to you, most of you know, Dave Allen. He's been a member of this church for, boy, a long time. So I it is uh, my joy to have Dave come up and preach the word. He's, and he's, I've seen the sermon. I've actually read it a few times. It's really good. So you guys are going to be blessed. And so Dave, why don't you come up and uh, preach the word this morning to us. Thank you, Pastor. It's, uh, it's an honor to have you share the pulpit with me. Well, good morning. As part of the effort 
to win World War II. Our country's military and top scientists joined forces under the infamous Manhattan Project. This top secret endeavor looked to apply the theoretical immense power of nuclear energy in the form of a new weapon, the atomic bomb. And leading up to the first test of the explosive device in New Mexico in 1945, the scientists actually placed bets on how big they thought the explosion would be. One of the lead scientists, George Kistiakowski, he predicted that it would explode with the same force of 100 tons of TNT. Now, just for context, if you remember the recent devastating explosion in Beirut, uh, that had a force equivalent of about 500 tons of TNT. In that first atomic bomb test, when it exploded, it let loose the equivalent force of 18,600 tons of TNT. What's interesting to me about that is that the people who actually helped develop the bomb didn't have a clue how powerful their device was. Their estimates were off by a factor of 200. Now, after they witnessed the power of their work on display, then they knew what they were dealing with. The book of Jeremiah, just like the rest of the Bible, is an account of God's attributes on display for us. And just like those scientists didn't understand the power of nuclear weapons, God's children often don't fully understand the God that they serve. And while God is not chaotic and single-mindedly destructive like a nuclear bomb, he is far more powerful and far more awesome. And just like scientists study the behavior of their subjects, we need to study and understand God better. Thankfully, God works in our lives for that purpose, to put his attributes on display and to make himself known. And that's the main idea for my message this morning, that God will pour out his servants, he will discipline his wayward children, and restore them both, all to make himself known. I'm going to read that again. God will pour out his servants, he will discipline his wayward children, and restore them both, all to make himself known. This morning we're going to be looking at two examples in the book of Jeremiah where God made himself known to people that didn't completely know who they were dealing with. We'll be looking at the broken servant and the rebellious bride. But before we jump into that, pray with me. Lord, thank you for bringing us together this morning, whether it's in person or online. I pray that you would calm our spirits of the cares and distractions of the week so that we can worship you now in study. Please guide my words to convey what you would have us learn today. Help us to know you better and give us boldness to share that knowledge with those around us. We ask for your blessing on this time. Amen. If you think back to when you first accepted Christ, do you remember feeling excited about what you were going to do for the kingdom of God? Maybe you dreamed of teaching children's church. Or maybe you wanted to serve up here on the worship team. Maybe you had visions of going into full-time ministry, possibly even overseas. I'll tell you what you probably didn't dream about, and that was the ministry of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was called by God to preach to the people of Israel at a very dark time. God had warned Israel for a long time that if they didn't turn back to God, he was going to bring discipline. 
Jeremiah was tasked with prophesying this discipline of God that was coming in the form of a pagan army ravaging the promised land. And then when the army was on their doorstep, God instructed Jeremiah to tell the people that they were to submit to God by giving themselves up to the Babylonians. Our passage this morning is Jeremiah 15, and I'm going to be looking at verse 10 through the end of chapter 16. So go ahead and turn there if you have your Bibles. At this point in Jeremiah, we're coming into the middle of his ministry, and he has made no friends carrying out the tasks that God has laid out for him. And just a spoiler alert, the people did not respond to his preaching. Jeremiah, throughout his ministry, had to contend with lying prophets, with unrepentant listeners, and leaders that would arrest him, beat him, and at one point, they even threw him into a muddy pit to be left for dead. So with all that in mind, and understanding what Jeremiah has been working with, please read with me, starting in verse 10 of chapter 15. He says, Woe is me, my mother, that you bore me, a man of strife and contention to the whole land. I have not lent, nor have I borrowed, yet all of them curse me. The Lord said, Have I not set you free for their good? Have I not pleaded for you before the enemy in the time of trouble and in the time of distress? Can one break iron, iron from the north and bronze? Your wealth and your treasures I will give a spoil without price for all your sins throughout all your territory. I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know, for in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. Pause right here. Jeremiah is saying here, what we're reading, is that he has delivered God's difficult message. He's done what has been asked of him. And now he wishes that he'd never been born. So let's pick up again here in verse 15. And this is the part we're going to kind of focus in on as he continues to cry out to the Lord. So Jeremiah continues, O Lord, you know, remember me and visit me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your forbearance, take me not away. Know that for your sake, I bear reproach. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. I did not sit in the company of revelers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone, because your hand was upon me, for you had filled me with indignation. Why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Will you be to me like a deceitful brook? like waters that fail? One of the many things that I love about God's word is that it's brutally honest. It's honest in its portrayal of our perfect creator, but it's also honest in its portrayal of the imperfect men and women that it observes. Friends, Jeremiah is at a real low point here. He not only has to contend with the sinful people around him, But here we see he is struggling with what God has asked of him. In addition to the challenges of the difficult people, God called Jeremiah to be a living object lesson in a number of ways. He was instructed to walk around town wearing an oxen's yoke on his back. At one point, God even instructed Jeremiah to make a dubious real estate purchase just to make a point. And Jeremiah later, we read, would have to witness the horror of seeing God's temple burned and looted by barbaric invaders. And that's all 
pretty bad, but I, I want to focus on one aspect of what God called Jeremiah to do. And for that, you're going to need to skip ahead here to chapter 16. I'm going to read verses 1 to 4. The word of the Lord came to me. You shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters who are born in this place and concerning the mothers who bore them and the fathers who fathered them in this land, they shall die of deadly diseases. They shall not be lamented, nor shall they be buried. They shall be as dung on the surface of the ground. They shall perish by the sword and by famine, and their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. So again, as a walking object lesson, God forbade Jeremiah from marrying or having children. Now to understand the weight of this, consider the nature of family culture in the world at the time, and specifically as it relates to the Jewish nation. At this time, there were no 401ks. There's no pensions, there's no social security. So in this day and age, to have children was to have security in your old age, both financial and for things like healthcare. Beyond that, as a child of Israel, to have children was to contribute to the confirmation of God's promise to Abraham. Think of it, if, if the nation of Israel suddenly just stopped having kids, eventually God's promises to them would be meaningless because there wouldn't be any of them left to inherit that promise. So Jeremiah's parents had the honor of perpetuating that covenant just by the act of having Jeremiah. Jeremiah, on the other hand here, would be denied that honor. So with that context and that, that challenge that God has put in Jeremiah's life, look back now to chapter 15. I'm going to reread verse 17. Jeremiah says, I did not sit in the company of revelers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because your hand was upon me, for you had filled me with indignation. He's saying, I didn't associate with those that mock you, God. I sat alone. And in studying, I found that some commentators will read the phrase about God's hand being upon him as a comforting protection. But I really feel that in the context here, as I read it, Jeremiah is lamenting the burden that God has called him to. Friends, Jeremiah is hurting here. He's lonely. He's depressed. And the weight of that hurt and loneliness is now giving him serious doubts. Verse 18, why is my pain unceasing? My wound incurable, refusing to be healed. Will you be to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail? Do you hear what Jeremiah is saying here? He's saying, God, I've done what you've asked. You gave me a message and I delivered it. You called me to be a spectacle to these people and now I'm utterly alone. I'm hurting so bad and now I'm afraid that when I'm called up to heaven's doors, I'm going to knock and no one will answer. I need to know that you're for real and that I've chosen the right side. Have any of you ever come to that point? You've been trying to honor the Lord and life has not been a cakewalk. You've poured yourself into that youth ministry and those twerps just aren't listening to you. 
you've shared the gospel with your friend and now they mock you for it? Maybe you've been struggling with chronic pain and you don't understand God's purpose in it and you're not sure that you can take anymore. You've been yearning for a spouse or for a child. Neither have come and you're afraid the window of opportunity is slipping away. Friends, these are difficult callings and they are not uncommon. If you're struggling with these pains that seem unceasing like Jeremiah's, I want you to see here first in Jeremiah's example a model for what to do with those pains. Are you weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do your friends despise, forsake thee? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms, he'll take and shield thee. You will find a solace there. For any of you that are younger than 30, those are lyrics to a hymn that's called What a Friend We Have in Jesus, and I highly recommend looking it up. Friends, doubts will come. When they do, however, don't let them drive you from God. Like Jeremiah, let them drive you to God. So we've heard Jeremiah's prayer and and his doubts. So let's look at God's reply. Picking up in verse 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, I will restore you and you shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. They shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. And I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail over you, for I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the ruthless. First notice that God starts with a call for Jeremiah to return to him. This is a rebuke. And it's a reminder that while doubting God is entirely human and not uncommon among believers, it is still a sin, and a sin that we need to confess and ask forgiveness for. But in that same first sentence is the promise, I will restore you. And at the end again, he says, I am with you to save you and deliver you. God reminded Jeremiah that he never really did sit alone. God was always with him, and that is more precious than anything Jeremiah was asked to give up. You notice that God didn't promise to give back to Jeremiah what he was tasked with giving up, and it's a reminder that if we're going to dedicate ourselves to the service of our Lord, we have to be prepared to loosen our grip on what we hold dear. There's no promise that God will call you to the same extremes of Jeremiah. But there's no promise that he won't. In Philippians 3, verses 7 to 11, Paul wrote, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. 
the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the, re- the resurrection from the dead. Paul, when he wrote that, he recognized that suffering is an opportunity to engage in a shared experience with Christ, thus deepening our relationship with him. In my life, um, I've been blessed to not have to know the pain of losing a a close one, to have have a death um, of somebody close to me. C.S. Lewis wrote of grief, saying, grief is like a long valley, a winding valley, where any bend may reveal a totally new landscape. I wouldn't disagree with C.S. Lewis, but to be honest, I just don't know. I can't relate to that. If you were to come to me for consolation in the death of someone close to you, I can listen. I can empathize. I will weep with you. I will pray with you. But I won't really understand what you're going through. My wife, on the other hand, had to endure the sudden loss of her father when she was only 17. If you were to take your suffering to her, she will sympathize with you. And you will know that she understands what you're feeling. She'll even go one step further, and she'll be able to anticipate what would most comfort you, while I can only make well-intentioned guesses. That kind of shared experience creates an immediate camaraderie between those who have, shared, who have suffered similarly. So consider that, and consider that Christ experienced poverty, pain, Loneliness, temptation, frustration, rejection, disappointment, betrayal, and loss. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And that word weaknesses in Hebrews can also be read as sufferings. When you cry out like Jeremiah, know that Christ hears you and he answers back, I know. I know. And know that from that perfect sympathetic compassion, he knows what you need to walk through the trial. In 2 Corinthians, Paul describes having been in such danger that he assumed that he and his company were sentenced to death. And this was just a way of life for Paul. In light of that, however, he was able to say in chapter 4 that although his outer self was wasting away, his inner self was being renewed day by day, and that his light momentary affliction, as he called it, was preparing for him an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This means that no matter what horrible circumstances you're going through right now, when you get to glory with Christ, you're going to look back on everything and you're going to say, it was worth it. It was worth it. And that's not just a promise for me, friends. That's a promise from our Lord recorded in his word. 
if you find yourself like Jeremiah, asking God if he will be a deceitful brook, a mirage, waters that fail, listen to the words of our Lord that he spoke to the woman at the well. Jesus said to her, whoever drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. We just sang it. If you have nothing but Christ, praise God, you've got it all. We have an indication that Jeremiah did learn this lesson. Uh, If you'll flip ahead to chapter 16, verses 19 and 20, we see that Jeremiah cries out, O Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble. To you shall the nations come from the ends of the earth and say, Our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, worthless things in which there is no profit. Can man make for himself gods? Such are not gods. Jeremiah's suffering helped him to know God better. So we see how God made himself known to his suffering servant. Let's turn now to those that Jeremiah was preaching to because they also needed to know God better. Like I shared earlier, these people had been warned time and again to repent or face the consequences. And a difficulty in reading the Old Testament is that the world of that time is so far removed from our own that when we think of the sin of Israel, we may be tempted to reduce it to the scene of the golden calf from Charlton Heston's movie, The Ten Commandments. And the danger there is that we reduce their sin to a cartoonish scene that we can't relate to and thus assume that God's anger with the Israelites could never apply to us. But the sin that angered God at this time is still alive today, and in some cases even among the church. In Jeremiah 16, verses 5 to 9, God delivers his message of judgment to the people. We're actually going to pick it up in verse 10, because this is where we hear from God why he's doing what he's doing. So in verse 10 of chapter 16, we read, And when you tell this people all these words, and they say to you, Why has the Lord pronounced all this great evil against us? What is our iniquity? What is the sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? Then you shall say to them, Because your fathers have forsaken me, declares the Lord, and have gone after other gods and have served and worshipped them, and have forsaken me and have not kept my law, and because you have done worse than your fathers, for behold, every one of you follows his stubborn evil will, refusing to listen to me. Therefore, I will hurl you out of this land into a land that neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods day and night for I will show you no favor. So what what does God say these people are guilty of? And could that ever apply to us? Is that anything that we can relate to? Well, let's just work through it and list it out. It says that they forsook God. Now, forsake as a word doesn't get used too much in our day, but it means to turn away from or to desert or to ignore Can you think of a time that you've ignored the conviction of the Holy Spirit and behaved in a way that you know is offensive to God? It says that they went after 
other gods. Now, you may not burn incense to a pagan idol, but can you remember ever wanting the approval of a friend or a significant other so much that you centered all your attention and affection around them? It says that they didn't keep God's law. Okay, that's easy, right? We don't live under the law of Moses. But we do have directives from the Lord that he expects of us. Husbands, have you ever failed in the instruction to love your wife as Christ loved the church? It says that they followed their own stubborn evil will and that they refused to listen to God. Friends, we need to understand that when we gather here on Sunday mornings, we gather primarily to hear the word of God preached. And if you're not paying attention to Pastor Jeff, you're not paying attention to God. And I hope you don't think that I'm confusing Jeff with God. I know him too well for that. But I mean what I say in that God uses our weekly gatherings and Pastor Jeff's preaching as one of his main modes of delivering his will and guidance for our lives. So this list is actually pretty close to home. And much is made of the differences between Israel and the church. But I want you to listen to a moment for the length to the language of Jeremiah 3, verse 20, where we read here that uh, he says, Surely, as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. And now compare that language to Ephesians 5, where we read, For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So the relationship between God and his people is described using the metaphor of marriage in both the Old and the New Testament. And what we can draw from this is the common theme that when we sin against God, it is similar to the deep hurt of the betrayal of an adulterous spouse. Just because we as the church have different promises and a different context than the nation of Israel doesn't mean that God is any less offended by our sins and rebelliousness. So we have more in common with the Israelites than we thought, but does that mean that we can expect the same types of consequences? In this passage, we read that God is plucking the Israelites out of the promised land, and he's going to give them into captivity. Now, that alone is shocking to me, and it's shocking to me because God's image as a deliverer of Israel is wrapped up in the dramatic exodus out of the slave-driving nation of Egypt, and then clearing out the pagans from the land that God specifically set apart for them. And now, here in Jeremiah, he's talking about reversing all of that. No more land and slaves again. Now again, we struggle to relate to those circumstances, and I'm sure that you'd be quick to quote Romans 8.1 to me. And if you know it, go ahead and say it with me. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a great verse, and it's a great promise. Let's be clear, however, that condemnation and discipline are two different things. And I want to repeat that. Condemnation and discipline are two 
different things. The condemnation that Paul speaks of in Romans is final and eternal. It's the condemnation that's reserved for those that are rebellious to the end of their life and are brought to account on the day of judgment. If you have not yet accepted that you are sinful and deserve condemnation, if you have not yet accepted that God condemned Christ on your behalf, if you haven't yet accepted that sacrifice and turned to Christ as your Savior, then yes, there is condemnation waiting for you. And I'll just say that if, if that's where you are, then please don't let another day go by without turning to God. I or any of the elders or the pastors would be happy to answer any questions you have. You don't know how many days you have left to escape that eternal condemnation. If, however, you have accepted Christ as your Savior, then there will be no condemnation waiting for you at the judgment seat of God. Scripture is clear that you weren't saved by your own power. You don't have the power to unsave yourself. Okay, so that's condemnation, but that, that is different from discipline. So God holds the right to discipline us in this life for our sin, and that is a very important distinction. Eternal condemnation is God exercising judgment on those that rebel to the end. Earthly discipline is God shepherding us with his rod and away from the cliff and back to green pastures. This is summed up beautifully in Hebrews 12. Uh, I'll read verses 5 to 11. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to him, to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I wouldn't wager that one day we're going to look out the window and we're going to see that God has sent a Babylonian army to enslave us. But lest we become complacent and take the mercy of God for granted, I want you to consider for a moment the Ephesian church. The church of Ephesus was once a major hub of missionary activity in the first generation of the church. But our Lord rebuked them in his vision to John on the island of Patmos. In Revelation 2, we read... Jesus saying, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works as you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. And friends, this prophecy came true. You can visit this part of what is now the nation of Turkey today, and there is no church of Ephesus. It just doesn't exist anymore. And this body that we call Edgewood Bible Church, it is a blessing, but it is also a responsibility. Don't take it lightly. And don't assume that it's beyond God's prerogative to close our doors. 
I pray that won't happen, and I know you, don't, you do too. Whatever discipline looks like for us, either individually or corporately, there is always hope, however. The hope we have is that while discipline can take many forms, God's goal is always restoration. Look at what he says immediately after pronouncing his discipline on his rebellious bride. I'm going to read from Jeremiah 16 here, verses 14 and 15. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them. For I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. Just like in his promise to Jeremiah, God promises here to restore Israel. Even this shocking turn of events to cast them out of the promised land is all about getting them to know him better. To understand that when God speaks, they are to listen. That God is not a block of wood that you rub for good luck. And just like we've already seen with Jeremiah, knowing God is the best possible state that we can be in. God's discipline of his wayward bride is an act of love. And praise God, his love for his people is not dependent on our behavior. Even though we will let him down time and again, our future is always ultimately favorable because he holds us in his hands. We give him every reason to cast us out forever, to give up on us, and he over and over restores us. Like Paul, we can be sure that God, who began a good work in us, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. How is that possible? How can the perfectly just God have communion with rebellious followers? Find the answer in Romans 5. Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. His goal, friends, is to make himself known. And whether it's blessings or discipline or even judgment on the wicked, God is making himself known. The last verse of chapter 16 sums all of this up for us. God says, therefore, behold, I will make them know. This once, I will make them know my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. So what do we take away from all of this? Number one, if you're serving God faithfully, expect hardship. Secondly, if you're straying from God, expect discipline. And truthfully, we'll likely fall into both of those camps from one week to the next. But in either case, remember that the suffering is always under the control of the creator of the universe. And the promise for his children is restoration and a deepening relationship with God. So whatever your circumstances, 
use them as an opportunity to know God better. I'm going to close this out here with a verse that you're probably familiar with. It comes from earlier in Jeremiah, in chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for this time. I thank you for this church, and I thank you for your word. Please help us to not lose hope in our suffering. Please continue to discipline us when we sin. And above all, help us to know you better day by day. We praise you for sending your son to die for our sin so that we could be delivered from darkness into the light of an eternal relationship with you. All glory be to you, Lord. Amen.